The goal of a Christian life is not to be a good, religious Christian person. The goal of the Christian life is not to be a good Christian. Many times we get caught up with wanting to do what's right and to be considered a good Christian man or a good Christian woman or a good Christian young person that we run the danger of completely missing the point. In fact, I think this desire to be a good Christian person or a good religious person is oftentimes a trap that we get caught into and it almost feels like it's this trap that leads to the the hamster wheel to where we're running and 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 and we just end up getting exhausted. Or maybe even worse, that we just end up running on this hamster wheel and we want everybody else to notice how good we're running. It's not the goal. It's not the point. Imagine the horror... Some of you have read the story um, where the, the Catholic priest was saying the wrong words at the baptism of the young people and that there were 20 years of baptisms that the Catholic Church deemed as invalid. And while I don't agree with um, the reason that they baptize infants and what that signifies for them, I can only imagine being a parent and maybe the horror of that, where You come in and you think you're doing the right thing. You're doing what the church has asked you to do. Only to find out. That it had no effect. Or that it was wrong. Or somebody else messed it up. I mean look. Damon and Ruby uh, before COVID. uh, Had been spending some time talking about milestones. And talking about family ministry. And how we are merging children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, and, and we're, we're going to get back on that path. But we talked in that about milestones, about times that we come together and we celebrate certain things in the life of your children, in the life of you as an adult, in the life of you as a senior adult. And here's the reality. You can raise your child in the church. You can hit all the milestones. They can be a good Christian young man or woman. And they get to a certain age and they just abandon the faith. At Crossroads, where I was previously, we had a group of folks who came out of a certain church and a certain uh, college here in town that was associated with that church. And one of the struggles that they had is that at this church and from this college, you literally got a piece of paper and you literally checked a box if you went to Sunday school, if you attended church, if you gave your offering, and if you witnessed. And if you did these sort of things, you would get recognized and you'd get a prize. And as I met and have met a lot of these folks, and as a lot of these folks were at Crossroads, it was amazing the struggle because the dutifulness, the piety 
wasn't producing in them what they thought it would produce. Or maybe even the, the horror of you could have a man or a woman who went through this institution and were in this church and they were the best of the best and they never missed a Sunday. They never missed an offering. And yet they walked away from the Lord. Leadership in Christian churches are filled with people who are really good at doing the religious dance. And then we're shocked. We're shocked when they leave, when they abandon the faith, when they falter. The goal is not to be a good Christian. And today we're going to have a lesson in that. And we have a lesson of, in that when we see this man, this scribe, who comes to Jesus. And I think in our terms, we would have described this man, this scribe, as a good Christian man. It's interesting, as you study the Scriptures, you, you place an age and you place an image on these characters. And in, in my mind, I don't know why, but this is a middle-aged, slightly balding, really good guy. And there's no evidence in the text that that's what was going on, but in my mind, that's what is happening. What we are to see is that if, if you've been following along with us, if you've been here, this is kind of a break. This is kind of an anomaly in the text. That up until now, as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, he's in his final week before he's going to be put to death. And one of the things that we have seen is that there are groups coming at him and it's this all on assault, assault after assault after assault. And the scribes and the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming after him. Their goal is to destroy and to discredit him and to make him look silly. I mean, if we were to back up to chapter 11... In verse 28, they started with, who gave you the authority to come into the temple and to do these things? And then in chapter 12, verse 1, we have Jesus laying out this parable, and it was aimed right at the religious leaders. And you see in verse 12 of chapter 12, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. And then in verse 13, and they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him. And then last week... We have the Sadducees coming in a very smug fashion to try to discredit him and to make him look silly. That this is a huge break in the text that we have this man who's coming to Jesus with an honest question. And we've been talking about this and we see Jesus as this man comes to him. What we've been talking about is that Jesus sits down and talks to him. And explains to him, answers his question and explains to him what's going on. It's this real break in the action. It's different. And if, if you listen to Mark as he was reading, you would pick up on, man, this is different than what's been going on in this text. Now, we don't know much about this man. It could have been that this, he was a scribe. He was with the group that were going after Jesus, but after sitting there for a while, that maybe his mind and his heart changed about who Jesus was. That he was bold enough to be willing to say, whoa, wait a minute, like these guys don't believe you, but I see something different in you. A little unlikely. It could be that he was just kind of passing by and saw the commotion and stopped and started listening and was like, oh man, this, this Jesus guy's got something going and he brought questions of his own. We don't know. 
We don't know. But what we do know, look in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? That this man was hearing. He was listening as Jesus was talking. He, he recognized, the text said, that he answered well. So as he was hearing and he heard Jesus, he was saying, oh, th- th- this makes sense. I'm, I'm curious. I'm leaning in here. And then we have this man coming on his own volition. What we've seen in our text is that other men, others religious leaders had been sent to Jesus to do certain things. This man was drawn in. He was drawn to Jesus. His interest had been piqued. He had a good motivation for coming to Jesus and he was asking legitimate questions. I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I'll watch YouTube videos um, where there are question and answers about various topics. And you can almost tell when somebody gets to the microphone, is this a legitimate question or is this one of those questions that's meant to kind of poke the bear? Here... Jesus is taking this question and we see it's a legitimate question. And I want you to hear the question again in verse 28. What commandment is foremost of all? It wasn't a trap. This is something that would have been debated. In fact, the Jewish leaders would have believed in about 613 different laws. And they were always debating which one is the most important Which one is the heaviest? Which one should we give the most of our intention? How are we to look at this structure? We want to be good religious people. Tell us how to live in such a way that we can really make our life count. Help us to be good religious folk. And he really wanted to know. I think if we were there... I think in looking at this text, I'm going to use our southern language, so for those of you who are not from here, you can learn something this morning. He had a good heart. Bless his heart. He he has a good heart, this this young man does. Or, Or that he was operating in good faith in coming to Jesus. And in some ways, I could see myself asking a similar question. If Jesus were here this morning and he was having a question and answer, can't you see yourself maybe asking a question along these same lines? Like, Jesus, you know, this whole like giving and tithing thing has confused me. Can you can you help me out here? Because I want to do the right thing. Jesus, you know, your word says that, you know, that we are to do all these things. And man, I'm really trying to do them. Can you maybe help me this morning? Where should my focus be? What is your will for my life? How much time should I give? How much should I volunteer at the church versus being at home with my family? You could see yourself asking this question. I can see myself asking questions like this. What's fascinating is, as I've dove into this text, this encounter reminds me a little bit of the rich young ruler. I mean, the rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, remember, he kind of chased Jesus down and he fell at Jesus's feet. He wasn't coming to to trap Jesus either. He really wanted to know 
He really wanted to know, how can I make it to heaven? And he was a good man. He was pious. He was trying. He was working. There's no reason not to believe, and we talked about this when we were there, that this rich young ruler, I don't believe that he kept all the commandments, but I do believe that he was a good Christian young man, as we would say. That he was trying hard. That he was really working it. And you know the end of that, where Jesus looks at him and says, this one thing I have, go sell all that you have and follow me. And he went away sad because he, his heart, his God, was his money. I think there's a lot of similarities here. And so the question we need to be asking ourselves is, here's this guy, he's coming with good questions, good motivations, good intentions. How is this going to end? What's going to go on in this interaction with Jesus? Is Jesus going to expose this man's heart issues and heart problems? Look at verse 29 as Jesus answers. And the thing that we need to understand as Jesus is answering these, these questions is that this answer, the words that Jesus is using, a key here is that these, this is familiar language. This isn't anything new to this guy. It's, it's very familiar. So notice in verse 29. Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. This is considered the Shema. It was a Jewish prayer. And that really good Jewish folks, still to this day, would consider this prayer the most vital, the most important prayer. In fact, most Jewish people recite this two times a day. It's so important that often Jewish families are teaching and catechizing one another that this is the prayer that you say at the end of the day. The last thing from your lips would be this Shema, this prayer. So very important and also very familiar to this man. And when we hear this, this isn't just an academic exercise of proclaiming uh, monotheism, that there's only one God, that there's not many. It certainly is that, but there's more wrapped up in that idea. When this prayer is uttered, the intent of this prayer in Deuteronomy is not just that there is one God, but by implication of there being only one God, it is talking about the greatness and the bigness of God. That there is only one. He is above all. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is King. He is Creator. He owns it all. He sustains it all. And He reigns over all. There is no other like Him. There is none other that compare to Him. He's God. He's the only one. He reigns. He reigns. So it's natural, it's natural, if you really have this view of who God is, and notice here, the Lord, our God, personal, if this is our view, that our God is personal, and He is the supreme 
overall, there is only one implication of that for those who believe that. And the the only result of that would be what Jesus says next. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's the only result. When you see God for who He truly is, the only thing that you can rightfully do is worship. Reminds me of Romans 12.1. Right? Present your body as a living sacrifice. It's the natural implication of encountering this God. Now, some people make a big deal in this text, in this account. We have Jesus saying this and the scribe repeats it. And in verse 33, there's a little bit of a discrepancy. Jesus says, love with all your mind. And in verse 33, we have this scribe saying, uh, quoting it, how it would have really been in the Old Testament, which is with all your understanding. And all I think that is going on there is that Jesus is kind of tipping his hat to his hearers because they would have heard maybe understanding a little bit differently. And the point is simply this, that you are to love God with all that you are. It's just, this, these words are just encompassing all of us. Mind, heart, understanding, will. That when we truly encounter God, we love Him. We worship Him. And, and, when you love God, you love what God loves. And you begin to act like God acts. And we see in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see, and if you've been here for any time and listened to me preach, when I talk about the love of God, we, I want to talk about it in a certain way. That we are not made as people, as God's people, to be a people who damn up God's love and save it for ourselves. That we are made as conduits, as pipe, if you don't know what a conduit is, as pipe. That when the love of God pours in us, it comes out of us to neighbor. So... If you are a person who is in love with God, but is not loving your neighbor, there is something wrong. Because the natural result of loving God is loving neighbor. Again, this is familiar language. The scribe knew this language. In fact, he can quote it himself. One of the things that we know that this language does is it encapsulates the Ten Commandments. There's said to be two tables of the Ten Commandments. The duty to love God and the duty to love others. And this heading captures all of it, encompasses the whole law can be summed up in this, as Jesus says elsewhere. One of the things I don't think we can miss or if we do miss, then it's tragic. If you've been with us, one of the things as we've gone through Mark that we have said over and over again that Mark is subtly shouting to us is that Jesus is God. 
that these claims have gone on over and over and over again. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the love of God on display, don't we? As Jesus is going into towns and as he is healing people, as he is, as he is casting demons out of people who are just tortured, we see him loving people. We see him loving the worst of the worst, the tax collectors, the sinners. We see him taking time. We see the love of Christ. And we're, this is a Wednesday. And on Friday, he's going to be put to death. We're going to see the love of God on full display in his son, God himself in the flesh. How much he loved us. And so when we look at Jesus and we consider Jesus. And I think this is just in the background of this text as Mark is writing. Does when we see him love like that, does that compel us to love like he loves? I think that we like to love other religious folks. We like to love people that are nice to us. We love to love people who love us back. Who are easy to love. Or might be able to add something to our own little kingdom. But that's not how Christ loves. It's not how we were called to love. In fact, when you find in yourself an unloving heart. And I want you to remember this. Because this is convicting to me. When I find in myself an unloving heart, the problem is Lewis, it's not my neighbor. You hear that? When Lewis comes across in himself an unloving heart towards neighbor, which is defined as everybody, the problem is not my neighbor. The problem is Lewis. The problem is my view of God and His mercy towards me. Now we could camp there for a long time, but I want to get through this text. And I want you to see, I just love this man's response. Jesus answers the question, and I love that He says, Right, Jesus, you have answered correctly. Right, co-creator of the universe, you've done a good job. It's almost, again, like the rich young ruler. This man may have expected even this from Jesus. And the rich young ruler, when he heard Jesus talk about the commandments, he was ready, prepared. Right, Jesus, I knew you were a smart guy. You agree with me. But notice everything Changes. Notice. Notice what happens. He's repeating what Jesus answered. And in verse 33. It says. And to love him with all the heart. With all the understanding. With all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as himself. 
notice what this man says at the end, which is a very familiar, another familiar phrase, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The language that is used here really, really kind of denotes that this is almost a direct quote. It's, it's correlated to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And if we were to go back in the Old Testament, this sort of thing about sacrifices, better than sacrifices, better than burnt offerings, is a, is a theme, especially in the prophets. And what's going on is that when this is levied against God's people, it means two things primarily. One, it means that they have lost their first love. It means that they still may be involved in religious activity. They still may be going and offering sacrifices. They still may be going into the temple and, and doing religious stuff. They may be striving to be a good Christian, but the prophet, God, through the prophet, comes in and says, I don't desire your sacrifices. I don't desire your clean Christian living. Your heart is far from me. That when we look at the state of the people, when this claim is levied, that many, many times they've gone and they've chased other things to fulfill them. They are chasing other things for their safety. They're chasing other things for their identity. They're not loving Him. They're not recognizing who He is. And it just so happens, it's interesting how an inspired book by the Holy Spirit ties all this together. It just so happens that when this is quoted, the other thing that we often see in the text is that God's people are not walking justly and are not loving mercy. They're not taking care of the widows. They're not taking care of the orphans. They're not championing the cause of the alien but they are walking in selfishness. They are not being loving to their neighbor. And when God interacts with His people whose lifestyles had become this way, He tells them, I don't care about your religious activity. Your sacrifices? Nothing to me. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke that really points towards the reality that they have formed a relationship to religion versus a relationship with God. Fascinating. It's fascinating that this man says this because in some ways he's validating all that Jesus had done that week. As he's gone into the temple and turned over the tables, as he's, you know, chastised the religious leaders of the day. And I wonder if it was just a... just came off his tongue without him realizing what he was saying. But in that moment... it. It was validating all of this that you Pharisees, you Herodians, you Sadducees. The Lord is not happy with you. And this man, when he heard this very common phrase, 
validates this all at once. You religious people, you are busy. You're busy on this Passover week. Sacrificing. Wearing your robes, saying prayers, taking people's money. But you're completely missing it. How often do we boast in our religious activities, but our hearts are cold? Notice what Jesus says to this man. Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently. And he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. What in the world does that mean? If you've been in church, you know you either are or you aren't. And so when we hear this statement, you're like, what in the world does Jesus mean? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Remember how this book begins? The book of Mark doesn't begin with Jesus in a manger, Mary and Joseph and all this. It begins with Jesus' baptism. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we have John saying, The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the good news. I think when Jesus is saying this to this man, he recognizes in this man the respect, the authority, the intelligence. He's putting it together. And Jesus is right in front of him. And Jesus is saying, you're not far. You're not far. But let's be careful. The call to Jesus is not just some intellectual assent to a group of facts. As we've been studying in the book of Mark, and you'll, hear, you'll remember this theme, the call of a Christian is to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow Christ. And so when I think Jesus is saying, you're not far, it's kind of like standing on one edge of the Grand Canyon, and you can see the other edge. You can see it. And in some ways, it's not far. But there's a major problem. There's a gulf. And the question to this man, and the question to us, if we see, are you going to step? Do you trust Him? Many of you maybe have heard there's this evangelism method, and I don't even know the, I don't remember the name of it, but essentially you can draw it on a napkin. Man and his sin on one side separates you from God, and there's this cliff, this gulf, and on the other side is, is God. And how can man be reconciled to God when there's this gulf? And what's the answer? The cross. The death of Christ. The trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus has died for our sins. And so, 
all that we have to do is to trust Him, to believe, to repent. And the question is being begged of us. Isn't it fascinating that at the end of that verse, verse 34, there was silence. Did you notice that? After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Before, there was clamoring, there was hostility, there was anger. There was all sorts of things going on. And when Jesus tells this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God, there's silence. In fact, in verse 35, we have Jesus for the first time in a while instigating the conversation. I just wonder what that silence was like. I wonder if when the rich young ruler had his encounter with Jesus, and when he came asking Jesus similar things, of how do I be a good Christian young man, and Jesus tells him, sell everything that you have and follow me, there's a part of me that wonders if there was a gasp and a silence. We don't know what happened to the scribe. But I know there may be some here who have lived their life like this scribe. Greatly admire Jesus. You're attracted to Him. But you're not trusting Him. You're not far. But there's a gulf. And you'll never get through that gulf yourself. No matter how fast you run on that wheel, no matter how many things you do, no matter how many times you go to Sunday school, no matter how much money you put in the offering box in the back, it won't bridge that goal. Only one thing bridges that goal. Believe. Trust. Step. For many of us, if I would have started off this morning and asked, what is the greatest commandment? I would assume that most of you could have argued, could have not argued, could have told me what the greatest commandment was. You could have communicated that. This is a familiar story to you. But I wonder, I wonder if this morning might serve for us as well to check what's going on in our soul. And I wonder if many of you maybe get like me, and that is, is that your life as a Christian really becomes less about loving God and loving neighbor and more about trying to do a whole bunch of religious stuff. I wonder if your life has become something to where you want to be pious. You want to be a good Christian man or a good Christian woman. Or is your pursuit to love Him? 
to see him for who he is. To love your neighbor as yourself. So you may be asking, Lewis, yes, I'm convicted. What do I do? So here's the deal. We're going to have a workshop. And if you attend all six sessions, we'll give you a t-shirt and a coffee mug. And then you can be the leader of the workshop. God's word says that his mercy is new every morning. And I believe that a true relationship with God where we're seeking to love him with all that we are goes something like this. We wake up in the morning. We're on the edge of that cliff. And we're doing it all over again. And the goal of the Christian walk is that God is so big, so trustworthy, that we see Him as so loving, as so merciful, that we're willing to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. And what that means is that we begin to step one foot in front of the other. And yes, hear me, this is done, here's the Sunday school answer, this is done through getting in God's Word. But it's not getting in God's Word just to check it off the list. That's a religious practice. It's getting into God's Word so that we can see how great and good this God is. And it fills our soul and we get this image of who He is, how great He is, how loving He is. And it propels us to be able to step. And when we have doubts, and we all have doubts, we have doubts every day if we would just admit it, that we take those doubts to Him in prayer. And we're like the Father that we studied about months ago, who, I love the prayer, we all know the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. And so the goal of the Christian life is to use the tools that God has given us to take the steps. Oh yeah, there's one more. There's one more. This journey that we're on, that God has given us one another. In the book of Hebrews, there's this verse that tells us, do not forsake the gathering together. This is probably where that college and church got that for their checklist. You've got to gather with God's people, check it off. It's interesting if you back up one verse, it talks about stirring one another up. That we are to be in one another's lives, stirring one another up towards the work that God has for us for the right reasons. So when we are standing on that cliff, we're doing it with cheerleaders. Take the step. Take the step. Take the step. So the question is, will Lewis be this type of person? Will you be this type of person? Or will we just keep playing the game? 
tell you from personal experience, that game wears you out. It won't sustain you. It doesn't give life. And the reward is often cheap trinkets. But if you choose, if you choose to day by day look to Him and walk the life that He has for you, you'll change the world. You'll change the world. Because when the world looks at you, it'll see you acting like your Savior. And that changes everything, doesn't it? It's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. God, help us to be this kind of people. That the motto, which is the motto of this church, of loving God and loving others, is not just a familiar phrase, but is something that we strive after. Something that we long for. And God, I pray that as I preach this to myself first and to my friends now, that this doesn't become a tool that the enemy uses to kind of beat us up in this really weird sort of way of you don't love God as much as you should. Of course we don't love you as much as we should. However, your mercy, your compassion, your love towards us, motivates us to take a step. God, help us to be a people who are resting and working out of the reality of your love. And God, we know because we've seen it in your Son and we've seen it throughout history that when we when we step and walk how you want us to walk. Change happens. People are drawn into you. People see your goodness through us. Let us be that kind of church. Only possible through the death and resurrection of your Son, who reigns, Jesus Christ. Amen.